It's got a soul, this here old farm It falls asleep inside my arms We walk the fields under the stars But love is here in Goldshaw Farms Welcome to Goldshaw Farm. I'm your host, Morgan Gold. On each episode of our podcast, we bring you stories of people who are homesteading, farming, and chasing their dreams. And right now, I am looking at the cover of a book that I just recently read. You know, I, generally speaking, consider myself a contrarian agrarian. I am somebody who tries to be different. In fact, I believe it's better to be different than try to be better. And and I know that that's an important part of the business strategy I have for my farm. Um, you know, I don't go into products that are generally commodities. I'm trying to find unique niches, trying to find a unique approach to how I run the farm business because I feel like the only way I'm going to compete as a small farm is to be a very distinctive type of small farm. If I try to be a small farm like everybody else, I'm just not going to be that successful because I know there's so many other people out there who are better at growing than I am, who have more experience than I am, who are in better markets than I am, who have better growing conditions, like all of these things I can be bested at. And so the only thing I have in my control is to try to manage the farm business and approach the farm business in a different kind of mindset. Um, the, the, the reason I'm, I'm staring at this book and talking about this topic is because I think it's written by a guy who comes from a similar approach. The book is called Carving Out a Living on the Land. And it's by a guy by the name of Emmett Van Dresch. And, and Emmett is a uh, Christmas tree farmer in western Massachusetts. He's got a small farm um, you know, that focuses mostly on Christmas trees. Uh, he also has a spoon carving business and does some book editing on the side. Um, but you know, when he set out to start his agricultural enterprise... He focused in on this unique niche of Christmas trees. And, and actually, the way that he, he grows his Christmas trees is kind of unique, too. He, he does something what's known as coppicing, which is when you're cutting down a tree and letting a new tree grow back in its place within that same stump. Um, Emmett's book is this great sort of how-to guide on how to think about your farm business and starting your farm business and thinking about your farm business in the context of everything else that you have going on, whether it's your personal strengths or the land that you have to work with or the marketplace that you're working within. And, and it's just got some great thoughts. I, it's one of those books that I wish I read several years ago and it would have totally shaped how I approached my farm here. There's some things that I completely missed the boat on. There's some things that I stumbled onto accidentally. But inside this book, when I was reading it, I was just struck by how much wisdom there was. And so... After reading the book, I, I, you know, tracked this guy Emmett down on Instagram and said, dude, I loved your book. I got to talk to you and have a conversation. And he was all for it. So today's episode is my conversation with Emmett Van Dresch, where we talk about his book, his farm, and some general philosophies that you should maintain when you're thinking about starting your own farm business. Yeah, 
dad is an entomologist, so he studies insects, particularly uh, invasive pests and how to control them with biological control. And uh, he, he works at the local university, UMass, and, and I really liked the idea of working with him, but I also really wanted to be a cowboy. So I decided I was going to be an entomolo entomologist cowboy, and I was going to ride my horse to work behind his car. Somehow he was going to have to drive really slowly for me. But in my brain, that made total sense. <laughs> well, then I guess, you know, starting a farm doesn't seem like that much of a leap. Yeah, so I, so I actually grew up um, in a little town, kind of like the town I live in now or the town that the Christmas tree farm is in. And it, I grew up right next to what is now the last um, working dairy farm. And they had a son who was my exact age. And we grew up running around through their fields. So their fields were my fields. Their barns were my barns. And interestingly, I grew up with a real clear sense that I didn't want to farm because I saw the stress it put on them as a family and the exhausting hours that they had to work. And, but at the same time, I was deeply in love with the, the, the rural landscape that that created. I mean, that's in my bones in a way that uh, I feel very privileged to have had access to, those, to that land, um, even though it wasn't mine. Um, and then when I was in college, I came across the, <clears throat> the essays of Wendell Berry. And, and I realized that it was something that I was very attracted to, the idea of, of taking care of a piece of land and, and making it better and, and paying it forward. But at the time, I was working on sailing ships, and I wasn't interested in, in making that leap. Where I thought for sure I'd do it years down the road. Um, uh, but as fate would have it, I met my wife very young, and she was a farmer. And we tried sailing together and then we tried farming together and that's what stuck. So um, that's, I ended up doing it sooner than I thought I would. And, and now was that progression, you know, first on a like internship basis or like, how, how did you get into farming? Actually? Into farming. So, um, so she, my wife had been farming on the Blue Hill Peninsula of Maine for, for years, maybe five years um, off and on uh, before we met. So, we moved back to Western Massachusetts to be close to both of our folks, just by chance. We were both from here. And we decided we wanted to put down roots and be near our families rather than put down our roots up in that area of Maine, which was very attractive, that area of Maine, for people who are into this, what we're talking about. But um, for us, it was just very far away from our families. And um, so we moved back, and we knew we wanted to try farming, and we we're looking for a very specific set of what I want to do and what she wanted to do. She wanted to manage a vegetable farm. I wanted to work with vegetables and with her, but I also wanted to work with animals. Um, we even put on the list that we wanted to be equidistant from our sets of parents. And then lo and behold, we came across this advertisement for exactly all of that, like everything down to the being equidistant part. It was a, a, a small vegetable farm just a couple acres that was expanding into a dairy and they were looking for someone to do a, to, to be the vegetable manager. And they were looking for someone to work with the vegetable manager part-time, but also help start the dairy. And we called them up and said, Oh, and they were exactly 40 minutes from both of our parents. And we called them up and said, I think we're the people you're looking for. And they said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And didn't call us back. And then we called them up a second time and said, no, no, I think we're really the people you're looking for. And that's, that's what took. We did that for a year, and then they actually leased us the vegetable business for the second year because um, they were really diving hard into a yogurt business and realized they needed to just not do the, the vegetables. And then for a while, 
for especially that second year, it sort it it was the understanding on the table that they were looking for a new farm. And if they had found a new farm during that year, we would have bought their farm um, and and made a go of vegetable farming because we had essentially walked in, you know, me with no experience had walked into a situation where because of my wife's experience and because of the timing of the thing, you know, we walked into an existing farm that was looking to sell that had an existing market and client base that they were looking to, you know, have that be part of the deal. Hmm. And so, uh, you know, kind of unbelievable in, in a way. And, and while the, the housing arrangements were terrible, um, the, the farm itself had two large greenhouses. It had a couple, you know, had a couple small fields. It was set up. It was an existing, you know, farm that had been around for seven or eight years. So it'd gone through that initial growth phase and was in a pretty comfortable place. Um, and, and two things happened that towards that fall we realized that these farmers just weren't going to find um they weren't going to find their farm because they were looking for a very specific thing they were trying to you know have a pretty big herd of cows they were looking for one of these farms where there's really only two or three of these farms per town at least around here um and they don't go for sale really ever um and we just knew it was going to take them a long time and we didn't want to put our lives on hold until they got their self figured out. And we also realized that we had the opportunity to be young parents. We met when we were 22 and uh, we, we talked about how we, since we had the option, we wanted to be young parents. And we looked around at our farmer friends who were starting to have kids and we thought, well, they look miserable. So we thought we'd try farming. We thought we'd try not farming. My wife had a, a, a mentor up in Maine who said, you know, you should, try to as hard as you possibly can to not farm. And if you can, if you can't not farm, then you should farm. And we thought, well, we've never tried not to farm. So we decided to basically give up this dream of taking over this vegetable farm and move off the farm so that we could start having kids. Um, and, and that, so that was the fall of the great recession. So we didn't see that coming. And we found ourselves with a baby on the way and no work. And thankfully we had landed, um, we had been lucky enough to find one of the very few rentals in our town, which was in this farmhouse that happened to be on what turned out to be our Christmas tree farm. So we landed on our feet. We just didn't know it at the time. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's a funny story. Well, and, and, and now describe for, for, for me, what it's like to get into the Christmas tree business. Cause that's not a normal, <laughs> you know, traditional agriculture enterprise. Sure. Sure. So, okay. So first of all, full disclosure, I'm half Jewish and I, I had, I had a, a much more, I'm, I consider myself culturally Jewish ish. Um, and I have a much more Jewish friend uh, who was upset at me that I was taking over a Christmas tree farm until he found out that I was, that it was a business. And then he was totally fine with it just being a business. And and the other half of me is Roman Catholic, but basically none of me is, uh, has really much of an association with Christmas, except as the time that you go wandering around in the woods to find the scrubbiest little hemlock tree to, to chop down with a machete, and then you argue about who gets to use the machete because it's a treat. Um, and I hadn't, I'd never been to a Christmas tree farm. I never thought about taking over a Christmas tree farm. It was not... If you had asked me, hey, do you want to take over a Christmas tree farm? My answer would have been a definite no. Um, 
not because I don't love Christmas. I definitely love Christmas, but because Christmas tree farming, as I understood it, was just not the sort of agriculture I, I was excited about. Um, and and the farmer that we took over the farm from actually had come around to the farmer's market for the last several years, trying to find some young farmer who wanted to sort of get in and start cutting wholesale balsam brush in the fall. And he was trying to convince people that it was a good op opportunity. And all of us, including ourselves, had said, nope, nope, not interested. Because of course, fall is when as a farmer, you get to sort of relax and be done. And, um, but you know, the recession hit and we had our first daughter and we were kind of flailing around trying to figure out what we wanted to do. We, we tried a whole bunch of different things, you know, when you're mid twenties and you, I worked, um, I was, I worked building and repairing wooden canvas canoes for a winter. And then I was a zipline tour guide. And then I tried farming again for some other friends of ours down in the valley. And it just, you know, I wasn't, I just didn't know what I wanted. If I wasn't going to be a vegetable farmer and I wasn't going to be a sailor, then what was I going to do? And and here was this, here was our landlord essentially saying, you know, give it a try if you're, if you're interested. And finally I said, fine, I'll try it. And it was, it was in the fall and I helped him harvest brush, um, by brush I mean the balsam greens and, and trees. And I think I got paid $7 an hour and it was exhausting and sweaty and, and I found that it was actually an incredibly good fit for me. Um, Christmas tree farming, at least the way we do it, is just an unbroken series of very minor decisions taken one after the other. And the key is to just make them and 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 not second guess your decisions. Um, and I can do that all day long. And so it's, it's great for me. <laughs> That's awesome. And, and now... One of the, the, the coolest things I think about your Christmas tree farm is that it's not the traditional model. It's, it's based on a sort of coppicing approach. Can, can you describe yeah. it a little? Sure. And, and let me give a little history to it as well. So the it, coppicing is where it's mostly done with hardwoods. That's at least where people think of it, where it's when you cut a stump back, it's, the stump is not dead yet. It still has lots of resources in the roots and it tries to, keep on going by putting out lots of sprouts and buds. And this has been used by cultures for thousands of years to, uh, for, for anything from basket materials to agricultural materials to, uh, to fodder even. There are places that, that coppice trees specifically to get the, the young branches and the leaves to feed to animals. Um, and I don't think anyone, I, I don't know for sure, but my understanding is that basically nobody had an incentive to coppice a conifer because you weren't going to turn it into basketry or animal food or, or anything like that. And so there was no real reason to do that. And in the same town as our tree farm, but over on the sort of colder end of town, there was a guy who was growing Christmas trees back at the early 1900s in the way that Christmas trees were grown back then. When Christmas started becoming a thing and Christmas trees became a thing, the way that trees were supplied to cities was just by these very large rural tracks that had 
balsam forest and you just go and cut out the natural trees. And this, this guy, um, Linwood Lachure, essentially was observant enough to realize that on the stumps where he had cut above a couple layers of branches, those stumps stayed alive and put out new shoots. Whereas most conifers, if you cut them so that there are no live branches below the cut, the stump will just die. That's one of the big differences between conifers and deciduous trees. Deciduous trees, even if you cut them down to the ground, they'll still send up lots of little suckery sprouts. Um, but with conifers, if you leave those branches below your cut, the stump will stay alive and, and basically behave in much the same way as a deciduous tree. And the timing was just right that we were entering this period of American culture where Christmas trees were becoming a thing, but agriculture was still important enough in these small farms that nobody would think of, of growing trees the way we grow them now in straight rows on flat, well-drained land where you could get a tractor in easily because who on in their right mind would, would use good pasture land or crop land to grow Christmas trees. Um, and so there was this probably 50 year window where coppicing made a lot of sense because it, it fit well with the thriftiness of farming back then. And there was no good way to there's no good way to grow coppice trees in straight rows and really have it stay in a sort of, I mean, obviously the stumps are going to remain in straight rows, but because of the wide skirt of branches that are created, the, um, the paths don't stay in straight rows and, and they quickly close in. And it, it's, it doesn't make as much sense to try and sort of make it tractor accessible, although you certainly could. Um, and so my impression is that Linwood Lachur was then copied by a lot of other people. He became the president of the Christmas Tree Growers Association of America for a handful of years running and became kind of a big deal. And coppice Christmas trees became uh, a way of growing trees that people just knew about. It was just an option. People used it. And it fit in well because you didn't have to keep buying seedlings. And um, it gave you this ready source of brush of the skirts around the stumps. And there was not as much incentive to do it the way that we do it now because land that makes sense to grow trees the way you think of a Christmas tree growing now was too valuable being used for other things, growing, growing hay or, or growing crops. Um, so coppicing trees feels new, but it's actually quite old, um, coppicing Christmas trees. And Al Pirapan, the guy who started my farm, he moved to town, bought this farm, happened to meet Linwood Lachure and was looking for a way to make use of his crummy cow pasture. He didn't, he was an agricultural teacher and then he became a shop teacher and he didn't want to do the dairy tobacco combination that was the most common uh, along our section of town. There was, you know, a dozen small farms within a mile of our farm, all of them growing some combination of dairy tobacco um, and he didn't want to do that and he met Linwood and said I'm going to do that and it's going to fit in well with my teaching season and and I'm sure that there were lots of other people who started doing this at the same time all over the country and in fact coppice and Christmas trees is still practiced more out on the west coast where growers really appreciate the fact that 
the larger root system of these stumps makes them much more tolerant of drought. Um, but as far as I know, our farm is the oldest continuously operated example of this form of growing Christmas trees in the world, I think. Um, certainly in the country, I'd be comfortable making that claim. Um, and, it's, and it's entirely due to the stubbornness of Al Pan. That's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, because because when I was reading your book, you know, I, I was blown away when I when I thought about it. Of like, gosh, that's that's such an interesting business model because it's less about trying to plant an annual. I mean, it's it's yep. a, essentially a perennial mm-hmm. crop that you're managing, mm-hmm. and and at the same time, though, there's just this perfect seasonality to it too. That yep. it's not. Uh, I mean, yes, there's maintenance components that you got to do through the summer and work, work it and make sure you're maintaining certain parts of it, but it's not like an ongoing thing. It has a peak season, much like you're harvesting tree crops and then sure. it, just, it could stack with something else. It just, it, it really it, does. Yeah. Yeah. I was really yeah. impressed with that. And, and it's, you know, I, I mean, I think that's part of why I wrote the book was a, I realized that Al had never put it out there that this was a thing and tried to educate people or tried to spread it in any way. You know, every year the, some local paper decides to run a comparison story of our way of growing Christmas trees to some other more conventional way of growing Christmas trees. But Al never made a thing of it. And I realized that it's such a great system and, and, and nobody knew about it. What really drove it home to me was that, um, Dave Jackie, who wrote, um, uh, what was, what were the books that Dave Jackie, is it the food forest books? He happens to live maybe half an hour away. And he reached out and said, somebody told, you know, I'm writing this book on coppice agroforestry. And somebody said, oh, you have to check out this Christmas tree farm. And he came up to check it out. And he said, I've never, I didn't even know that this was possible. And here's the guy who's researching the book on coppice agroforestry, didn't even know it was possible with conifers, wasn't even on his radar. And it just made me realize that it needs to be part of the conversation. And it needs to be part of the conversation, not just because it's awesome, but also because it can fit in with anyone who's farming. Right. You know, well, because, because the amount of time it takes to prune them is not much at all. And then all the work happens in November and December. Right. I mean, I, that, that's, that's exactly what struck me. Cause like we have a, about a 600 tree orchard here at our farm that I put yeah. in about three years ago. So it's like baby trees still. Yeah. But one of the things that I put in there was uh, I interplanted black locust with the idea of coppicing for mm-hmm. their forage or for lumber. And, yeah. you know, it, it really dawned on me, let's say, gosh, you know, you could add some, some conifers in there and, and, you know, not make it a huge part of the farm, but just a small part. And, I'll take some yeah, time. And, and sure. farms, you know, farms that want to make like a, a, a conifer windbreak, this could be a great option for them because you still, you're, it's not like you're removing the entire tree. Some of these stumps, you know, they're six feet tall, big, broad, bushy things with the tree coming off the top. And so, you know, you harvest the tree and you've still got this enormous biomass blocking the wind. So if the point is to break up fields or just provide more diverse wildlife edge. Like there's lots of ways to do it. Ours happen to be sort of, well, we have 10 acres, five of which is sort of one big slope. And then the other five are sort of 
little pockets and sort of the, uh, an edge, like a horseshoe around the edge of a field where the middle was better than the edges. And so the way Al used it was to sort of fill in areas that were too marginal to grow um, vegetables on for his gardens. And he didn't want to turn all of his sort of central fields into Christmas trees. But there's, there's so many thoughtful ways to integrate this system into, into landscapes, it's, you know. Ours is just one example, but I can think of a, a million different ways to do it, that all of which are exciting. Yeah. So, so beyond wanting to share kind of the art of, of coppicing conifers, what, what motivated you to write the book? So um, I've always been a writer, and I, I had always thought that I would write books. And when I was just out of college, I realized that I needed to go through an extended period of just doing stuff before I could write about anything, whether it was going to be fiction, which I was never drawn to, or nonfiction, which I was. Uh, I realized that, you know, if I'm 25 and trying to write something, I haven't lived enough to have much to write about. Um, at least that was my thought. And so, I deliberately went through this period where, and it sort of fit in with having young children also, um, where I was just doing what I was doing. And, and then at a certain point, what was it? You know, I probably would never have written the book if we hadn't moved off the farm. So that's a whole other side of the story and one that I get into in the book. And I guess, so here's the answer. Here's the real answer to your question. And then I'll, I'll then I'll, tell that story if you like. But the real answer is that I found myself farming in this way where almost every aspect of what I was doing was the opposite of what I thought it should, what I had thought it should be originally, right? Here we were farming a farm that we deliberately chose not to buy. We were deliberately not building infrastructure and instead building temporary solution after temporary solution. We were, uh, you know, uh, we weren't doing vegetables. We, we weren't scaling up. We, there were all these things where I was looking at the sort of typical path of someone starting a vegetable farm and then you get successful and then you get access to more land and then you build a farm store and then you hire more help and then you make someone a manager, right? And there's sort of this, there's this pattern and around us, that pattern is repeated over and over and over again. There's probably five really stellar examples and probably 10 less good examples in a, within an hour of us of farms that are doing just that. And here we were kind of stumbling our way onto this other path where, where we were finding, we were sort of finding all of the secret advantages to doing things the opposite of how conventional wisdom told us that we should be doing it. Um, and I felt that that was worth sharing. And that was a book that I hadn't seen before. So I probably would never have written the book if we hadn't moved off of the farm, which happened for a handful of reasons. But basically, because of the way our landlord had planted the trees on his original 25 acres, and then he had built two other additional houses on the land, and then divvied up the land into lots that made sense in terms of road frontage 
and the houses, but made no sense in terms of where the trees were. Like they were all over every single lot. There was no way for us to buy all of the trees unless we bought everything, which meant three houses, 25 acres. It would have been a lifetime process. And we thought about it and there was a way that we could buy one house and about half the trees, but we could never see eye to eye with our landlord about it. And we felt like he felt that he had us over a barrel because he knew we wanted it and we had invested all this time in it. And we, we came awfully close, right up, tiptoed right up to the precipice of buying and then backed off. And then there was a pipeline that was supposed to come through. Um, that was, that was the, I can't remember the name of the Kinder Morgan was the company that was trying to push this natural gas pipeline across Massachusetts. And it was going to follow a power line that was the power line that was a half a mile down our road. And what was more was at least one of the proposals had where the power line crossed our road was where they were going to put in one of these gas recompression stations, which I didn't really understand beforehand, but they have to recompress the gas as it passes through the pipe. And there's all sorts of health, long-term health correlations with proximity to these gas recompressing stations, as well as plenty of examples of them just blowing up. And we thought, well, maybe we don't want to buy the farm after all. And right around that time, we um, happened to find our house that we ended up buying four years ago. And so we kind of threw all our cards up in the air. My wife was going back to school. We decided not to buy the farm, which meant that whoever did buy those three houses would have to agree to let us continue doing it, you know, or it wouldn't continue. And, and we bought this other house. And, and I have to say that that was probably the moment where I realized that our path was in many ways going to be very different from the typical farm journey that we read about. And certainly that I had idolized as a, as a, as a kid. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that's, that's one of those important things. And I, I know I bought into this misconception and, and almost look back on it and say, yeah, maybe I should have thought differently, but you know, there's always this belief that the, the farmer needs to live on their farm. Yeah. But, but that's just not necessarily the case. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, so there's, I mean, the, the advantages to living on your farm are obvious, right? You control it. You get to do what you want with it. Um, but the, but the, and for, and you could say that the sort of the advantages for something as, as with as long a cycle as a Christmas tree farm, right? 10 years is what it takes to, to put a seedling in the ground and get anything in return for it. Um, but what we found was that, first of all, we only live 10 minutes away and 10 minutes is enough distance that I really only go there when I'm pruning in the summer and then when I'm there every day for the season. And having that distance helps me make good farm decisions. And we were living there and thinking about taking over the whole farm. There's a whole bunch of things that are involved with taking care of the landscape and the house and the barns that were falling apart that would have nothing to do with the actual Christmas tree farm. Um, you know, there was about five acres of hay field that needs to be mowed, all of these multiflora thickets that need to be dealt with, this woodlot that needs to be cleared of multiflora rows, this, you know, stuff 
that doesn't actually have to do with the actual business that is the Christmas trees. And it, and it, and in that respect, we might very, had we bought the farm, I could totally see a path where we might have saved the farm structures and the fields, but let the Christmas trees go. And instead, by having that distance, by making it a real clear business that is separate from where we live, I was, I found myself able to make good business decisions more easily. And having the letting go of the feeling that I was going to spend the entire rest of my life basically paying off buying three houses and 25 acres um, meant that I all of a sudden had this space in my life. And I was able to write the book because of that space. If we had been sucked into this vortex of fixing a house that really on the verge of, you know, everything that could possibly be wrong with it was wrong with it without it being so far gone that it was irretrievable. Um, you know, I would be, I would be renovating a house right now, not writing a book. Um, <laughs> and so, and so there's only, you know, moving off the farm really helped us see our life open up more and helped us commit to the farm in a way that it would have been hard to had we bought the farm, which is a really ironic thing, but I think is true for many people. Now, we were incredibly lucky for a couple of reasons. First of all, everyone who has bought the three different houses has wanted us to, to continue. And in that, I, I can say that there are probably two things that were to our advantage. The very fact that the trees were splintered up all across everybody's lots meant that nobody controlled enough of them that it would make sense for them to try and take them over from us and run them parallel to us also continuing with the remaining trees. So there was a disincentive to try and do that. So the very fact that the land was in this permanent forest probably helped in keeping people from saying, actually, we want to turn this back into pasture for our goats, right? I think vegetable farmers are in a much more precarious position because it's super tempting for a landlord to say, you know, actually, I've been having thoughts and I want to have a horse, right? And then you're out of luck. Um, but because these Christmas trees were this massive thing, you would, you know, the amount of effort to completely eradicate this and turn it into a different landscape is, is unthinkable at this point. Um, as unthinkable as looking at a mature forest and thinking, I'm going to turn that into pasture. You just, you know, the path of least resistant leads, leads elsewhere. And so those two things that um, were part of why we didn't, buy it, well, certainly the, the everything being split apart was why we didn't buy it in the first place was also why it has worked out for us to lease it. Um, so I'm, I'm well aware of that and I'm not saying that everybody who's farming is going to find it as, as successful to just lease as we are. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of different forms of agriculture that aren't talked about that are, that have very different needs than just vegetables. Um, and, and I think a lot of these other types of agriculture could very well fit in nicely with different modes of land ownership than just straight buying the, the land. Mm -hmm. yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. And, and, you know, the other thing that, I was really struck by in your book that, that I, I also felt like, gosh, I wish I'd read this book like four years earlier. Uh, yeah, uh, 
<laughs> was the, sort of the idea of doing nothing and, and the value of doing nothing. Because I remember when I bought our farm, I was in such a rush to start doing stuff sure. that I feel like I missed a lot of opportunities by just sitting, waiting, and watching. Yep. Yep. And, and you know, I think we were lucky in that we, we rented this farmhouse for seven years before we moved off of it and bought the house that we have had now for four years. And so um, it was a, it was, it was a, it was a nice rental in the sense that our landlord was pretty happy to have us do whatever we wanted to do, but our resources were quite limited and we weren't going to do, you know, some extensive renovation on the outside of the house. Certainly we, you know, we fixed up and painted the interior and put in gardens and stuff on, on the outside, but we weren't, we weren't changing the envelope of the house. We weren't making big changes. And there were all these big changes that originally I was, I was excited to do. I was excited to buy the house so that I could make this change because wouldn't it be awesome if we had a screen porch here thinking, Oh, it's wet and therefore it's going to be buggy without realizing that, you know, there's not a screen porch here because actually there's so much wind coming down this, this meadow because of the way the prevailing wind is that even though there's a pond right there, it's never buggy around the other side of the house. And and the funny thing was, was watching the people who bought the farmhouse after we moved out do exactly the things that I had originally thought of doing because they hadn't, but the, that I had originally thought of doing, but then realized after living with the house for a couple of years, didn't need to happen. And in fact, shouldn't happen. And then they went ahead and did them because they had, you know, they were in the mode of like, let's fix up this house and do these big changes and they hadn't lived with it. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's easy to go in and, and change things up, you know, cutting, cutting things down is fast and growing stuff takes a long time. And, and while I'm a fan of how much change you can make quickly, if you really, you know, put your mind to it and, and go at it, you know, like I'm always amazed whenever I go to clear out a multi-flora rose hedge. I don't know if you guys have them that far up North in Vermont, but they're the bane of our existence around here. They form these huge thickets and I always dread tackling them. And then when I actually tackle them, you know, an hour and a half later, the thing is gone. It's chopped into little bits on the ground and I sort of feel a little sheepish that I let it slide for a year or two. But you know, I, I take great joy that change can happen quickly, but I've come to learn both the hard way and through luck that it's, it pays to just sit on stuff for a while because your first idea is rarely the best idea. I, I, I agree with that 100%. <laughs> so, so for the person who's lit out there listening to this podcast and, and they are either looking at their place that they're living in now, trying to decide what agricultural enterprise to get into or are, you know, recently, recently acquired a place and, and are, are trying to figure out what to do with it. What advice would you have for them? So, what makes sense to do is always going to be a combination of what you want to do, what your land is willing to do, and what your broader community and region makes possible. So the exact formula is going to be different. And it's not only going to be different from place to place, it's also going to be different within a place from person to person and from property to property. But what I can say is 
you're going to have some ideas. And the best thing to do is just toss a lot of stuff at the wall. Try a bunch of ideas because what works and what doesn't work, in my experience, has been more a function of almost sheer circumstance than that something feels like a natural fit. And in fact, the more you sort of double down and really dig in your heels and invest a lot because you're sure that this thing is a good fit, the harder it is to let go of it if it turns out not to pan out. Um, and I think the phrase pan out is a good phrase, right? It's, it's, it's not that it's a bad idea. It's just that good ideas need luck in their timing and they need um, serendipity in who shows up when. And, you know, whether a business takes off or not often has a lot to do with whether you end up with that one customer who's a valuable customer who sort of keeps you going when you feel like, is this worth it or not? Um, I do a lot of things professionally and I am more and more aware as time goes on that what has stuck around and become sort of the formula has very little to do with some preconceived idea of what would work really well and has more to do with what happened to work out of all the things that I've tried or considered or dabbled in. Now, that being said, I do think that especially if you've lived in an area for a couple of years and had your ear to the ground and have a sense of what the low hanging fruit is in terms of stuff that really there's a demand for, but it's not being met. And, and, and you could see how you would be in a good position to do something about that. That's totally worth going for. I don't mean it to sound totally random. Um, and I try and give some examples of how I think of how I think of that in my book. Um, and, and how to me, the key to a stable living, is not relying on any one thing, not just on the trees, not just on the editing business that I have with my father, not just on the spoon carving business that I have, but I always have feelers out for the next thing and the next thing and the next thing because it's just less risky that way. Um, and, and then there's the side benefit of it of it being, to my mind, a more interesting professional life than if I was had just doubled down on one thing. But the big thing is that I don't have all my eggs in one basket. So I think for me, if I were starting out afresh, I would think about what skills I wanted to have, see who has those skills and go work for them at whatever price, whether it was for free or for cheap or, you know, for or money if I could get it, but, but learn from that person, ideally in the community that I wanted to stay in. And while I was learning from that person in the community I wanted to stay in, have my feelers out and be thinking about, well, there's an opportunity, you know, there's nobody doing, you know, eggs, there's nobody doing this or that. And I've always wanted to kind of do that. And I kind of have the skills for it and I kind of have the sense for it. Um, 
and and then you slowly start building that while you're doing this other thing so that you never take some big scary leap and it's sink or swim i don't believe in sink or swim i believe in setting yourself up so that you can't possibly fail so badly that you're out of the game i never want to be out of the game and then you layer and you do one thing and then a couple years later while that's sort of at the sort of middle stages you think well maybe you know there's this other thing that maybe could be good and if you're thoughtful about how you layer them you can spread workout across the year and that's what's finally happened for me it took a long time um and that and that's the other thing i would say to somebody is just however long you think it might take probably triple that um, you know, if you think it's going to take you three years, it's definitely going to take you 10 years before you're at the place that you envision. Um, and, and, and so you have to figure out how you're going to survive in the meantime. And usually that just means tightening your belt and buying less stuff. So, so yeah, so that's my, that's my answer to the 25 year old me. But, I, <laughs> and I think, I think I think the 25 year old me would have listened because frankly that's what I did, um, and it's sort of what I did hmm, out of out of circumstances. I don't think I ever sort of read any example of of what I'm saying and it and had it resonate and had it say like that's what I want, you know, and like tried to tackle it. I think I kind of stumbled on it, but having lived it, I can say that it's in my experience, it's much more the reality of how to make something work in the long run is to set it up so that you never, you can never lose because you aren't leaning so hard on it that if it doesn't work out for the first bunch of years, you're still fine, right? I mean, this is why people have farms and then they have a job. And that's, I think that's great. I think that's, I think that's exactly right because because stuff works out professionally at its own pace and you can't plan it. And especially when the professional stuff is also linked to a seasonal cycle like a farm, it adds an additional break to that whole thing um, and a sort of a reality check to it. And, and, and that I think whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, doesn't really matter. It is what it is. And if you love it and you're, and you're, and you want to farm, that's, that's your reality is that that's, there is that natural pace to it that you can't push beyond a certain, certain rate. go. That's what it takes to start a Christmas tree farm in Western Massachusetts. Um, I'm not saying that everybody should rush right out there and go start their own Christmas tree farm. I think it's a very cool concept and I think it's a very cool setup that Emmett has going for himself. But I think the bigger lesson that you should be taking away is think about those unique opportunities. Think about what's not already saturated in your market and think about what is uniquely suited for the context that you're working within, whether it's the land, your distribution system, your personal interests or skill sets, whatever it may be, 
think about those advantages and let that be the foundation for what you do from a farm perspective. So I hope you guys enjoyed that interview. Let me know. Shoot me an email if you've got any feedback. And I also strongly encourage you guys to check out Emmett's book. Again, it's called Carving Out a Living on the Land. I'll leave a link for it in the show notes. The book's published by Chelsea Green, who's a publishing company that just does a whole bunch of good, interesting agricultural books. You guys could probably go to their website and check it out. And also check out all the other cool books that those guys have. It's just they're one of my favorite publishers out there. And if you're a fan of this podcast, the odds are pretty good that you're going to be a fan of their books. And no, this wasn't a commercial at all. This was just me being a consumer of many of their books and really enjoying them and saying, hey guys, you should give it a listen. And that's really all I've got for today's show. Um, you know, if you want to learn more about me and what we're doing here at Goldshaw Farm, be sure to check out our YouTube channel. We just hit another milestone and, and um, just crossed the 13,000 subscriber mark. So it's so cool to see that YouTube channel growing. Uh, we try to tell two stories each week about what's going on here with our farm. And if you want to give me feedback on the podcast, I know uh, last week's episode I had a couple little audio glitches. Sorry for that, guys. If you downloaded the early episode, you can actually go back. I'm still learning this whole podcast thing, and, and so I screw up regularly, and I appreciate you guys bearing with me. It means a lot. Um, but yeah, just send me an email if you ever have any questions or feedback, goldshawfarm at gmail.com. Or you can always check out our Facebook group. It's uh, the Goldshaw Farm Podcast uh, Facebook group. It's, it's right there on Facebook. You kind of say, yes, I'll agree to the rules. And then I get a little notification and I approve you as a member. And then you can hang out with all the cool people. We have these interesting conversations about the shows as well as about various topics adjacent to the podcast. And so I hope you guys enjoyed all of that. Um, be sure to tune in next time when we will have another story of somebody who's either homesteading or farming or doing something that I think you guys will find interesting. And with that, I will ask my good friend, Mr. Keith Pierce, to play our theme song. It's got a soul, this hero farm, it falls asleep inside my arms. We work the fields under the stars, the love is here at Goldshaw Farms. City life, yeah, had its charms But we would dream of the fields under the stars I fall asleep inside its arms The love is here at Goldshaw Farms The love is here at Goldshaw Farms